The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or lifehousechurch.org. Who do you turn to when you have nowhere else to turn? Whose name do you call out for when everything in your life is falling apart? Like, if you're anything like me, you tend not to turn to anyone. I can do this on my own. I'll figure it out. I got this. Right, because we got kind of this kind of this independent mindset. I can do it myself, and so as a result, you tend not to call out to anyone until you're in such a desperate place that there's no way out of your trouble. And usually, you wait too long to call out to someone for help. Now, just recently, I was actually doing some work, some construction work in my basement. Yes. I know how to swing a hammer, but I didn't really think too far ahead on this one particular moment. I was hanging sheetrock, and I actually got in the closet. I had to squeeze underneath one of the pieces I had hanging, and I was trying to cut it out. Anyway, it's a long story, but regardless, I'm inside, and I got myself trapped, and I couldn't get out. And I was like, oh, no. So I'm like, it's calling, Laura. And then, like, nobody came, and I'm like, started calling each one of my girls and finally one of them came running down the stairs and like, I'm like, I'm in here. Daddy, where are you? I'm, I'm in the closet with no door. I got in and I couldn't figure out how to cut myself out of it. Anyway, it's ridiculous. And like, isn't that what we do? Like we don't actually crawl for help until we've gotten ourselves into such a ridiculous situation and we've tried everything else to get out and we're trapped. And uh, so many of us, we wait so long to call for help that by the time somebody else has to come and help us, we're really in way over our head, and sometimes they can't even help us. And uh, maybe that's you right now, and you don't really know who to turn to when you have nowhere else to turn. And then there's the other side, right? Then there's those people who they're always crying out for help. And I want to be really careful here because I don't want to make fun or point fingers. And, but, you know, we just came out of this presidential election cycle, but I was seeing all over the news, all these colleges and universities that are setting up these therapy rooms, uh, and they, in the room, they have coloring books and Play-Doh and therapeutic animals like cats and dogs for students that are so upset about the outcome of the election that they need to go and they need to have coloring books and Play-Doh and animals to cuddle with. And, and again, I get it. Probably some of you, you're really upset about the outcome of the election. Others of you, you know, you think it's the greatest thing in the world. For me, I don't know what to think. Uh, but I, but I, it is kind of weird, right? Like a bunch of college students in there like, I don't know, cuddling with cats because they're upset about the, I mean, I'm like, I want to tell them like, hey, this is going to happen again in four years. Like you, you kind of at some point have to get used to this process. But the point is like, and then you, you know, you might like read the headlines like me and be like, really? And maybe make, maybe make, make light of it a little bit. And then what that does is, okay, we get this mindset of like anybody who goes and acts like that, they're like wimpy crybabies. Right? So if I go and ask for help, I might be a wimpy crybaby. So I'm not gonna ask for help. Besides, if I went and asked for help, would it make any difference in my life anyway? Because, you know, they can go into the therapeutic room and they can cuddle with a cat, but it's not gonna actually change the situation. It's not gonna make any difference. You can go to a counselor and they can hear you, but they're not gonna be able to help you. And so just full disclosure, I did my graduate work in counseling. I mean, I, not while I was in counseling, Actually, I got my degree in counseling, and uh, they actually train you in your counseling studies to like 
learn how to listen. And so with three, growing up with three brothers, my mom is a cop, was a cop, she retired. And so there wasn't a lot of like counseling going on in my house growing up. And so part of our training, they taught us to listen carefully for people's emotions. So when they express a feeling, you're supposed to pick up on that, right? As counselors, that's part of our job. And so um, I, I'm sitting in class and they're talking about emotions. And I'm thinking, what is this mysterious thing you speak of? <laughs> I'd never heard of this. My whole child, childhood, my, all of my life up to this point, I had no idea what they were talking about. Emotions, feelings, what? And because uh, I think some of us, like, it's hard for you even to express. So if you went and you actually turned to somebody when you have nowhere else to turn, you might feel like you don't even know what you would say. I don't even know how to get it out. Some of you, when you think about talking to someone about your feelings, that's scarier to you than facing your troubles head on. So what is your option then? What do you do? You just bottle it up? You just hold it in? And uh, then we live in a nation. People who chronically don't know how to deal with the issues they're facing. They have no, no one to turn to when they have nowhere to turn. And so as a result, you know what the outcome is? Uh, in the last 10 years, the use of antidepressants has gone up 400%. I mean, the use is quadrupled. That means one in, er one in every five adults in America is using some form of psych psychiatric medication. And again, I am not pointing fingers. I'm not blaming anyone. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm simply saying that's reality because we don't know how to cope with or that is our form of coping when we have no one to turn to and we have nowhere to turn. Every 10 minutes in America, someone will take their life. My conclusion is I don't know that the way we're dealing with our difficulties is healthy. I don't know that it's the best coping mechanisms. I don't know that this is the best approach, and so what do you do? Well, let me, let me in order to talk about how we can handle these moments and these difficult situations that we all inevitably will face. You and I will find ourselves in a situation where we are in over our head, where we have nowhere else to turn, and we don't know what to do. You will find yourself in a place at some point in life when you need someone to help because you can't help yourself. And yet, what do you do? And so let me, let me just go back in time. Let's, let's jump back 2,700 years because we're going we're gonna to enter into a context of a story that may be very applicable in our life today. 2,700 years ago, we're going to look at the nation of Judah. Judah was what, what remained of the nation of Israel after they went through a civil war. They divided into two countries, Israel and Judah. And then in 722 BC, the Assyrian world, what was the world power of the time, Assyria conquered Israel. Uh, tore them apart, took all, most of their citizens into exile, and so the nation remained. A few people lived there and the nation in rubble. And so Judah was still intact, but as I'm going to bring you to this moment in time, they just went through the death of their beloved king. Uzziah had died, and he was a godly man who, who um, ruled the nation with love and justice. He dies, and then Ahaz takes over as king. And so as would often happen, when a new king would come to power, other surrounding enemy nations would test the will of that king. And so two, um, two enemy nations allied together and are marching against the nation of Judah. This is where the moment picks up, right? And as these armies are coming against Judah... A pastor 
gets into a position of, well, not so much gets into, but begins to speak to the nation. He begins to spread word about what God has to say about this situation. And Isaiah's responsibility, he's this pastor, but he's not only a pastor, he's a prophet. And in ancient times, the prophet, his role was not only tell people what God had to say, but to foretell what God was going to do. And that's Isaiah's role. And then later in his life, Isaiah sat down and he wrote out all of his sermons. And he wrote out the context or the historical background of what was going on as he was preaching those sermons. And and that book that Isaiah wrote is called the book of Isaiah. It's included in the Bible because it's not just, it doesn't just recount history, it recounts sacred history, how God interacts with man. And so I wanna bring you right to this book, the book of Isaiah, and I'm gonna jump in at chapter eight. Isaiah is talking about what is going on in his nation, and he writes this in Isaiah 8, verse 21 and 22. Distressed and hungry, they will roam the land. Nowhere to turn, no one to turn to. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. So the very one that you might quickly think that they should turn to, they turn against in anger. God, where were you? Where are you? Why aren't you helping? You should be the one that hears us. You should be the one that helps us. And they're going to turn against God in anger. Then they will look toward the earth. So then they're going to look somewhere else for help. So they look to the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. Now that is a bleak midwinter. That is a dark season of life. And if that's where the story were to end, if that's where Isaiah were to stop preaching, it would be just that. It would be bleak and gloomy and dark and full of distress. But Isaiah doesn't stop preaching there. He starts preaching there. And this is what he says in the very next verse, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. He says, nevertheless, there will be, remember, he's foretelling what God is going to do. And he says, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. A time is going to come when God is going to intervene in the gloom and bring joy. God is going to turn despair into hope and darkness into light. How? What is he going to do to turn the story around? What is he going to do to transform the situation when a nation has nowhere to turn? What is God going to do to intervene in their trouble? And here is what the prophet Isaiah has to say about God's response. He said in verse 6, For unto us, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And you think, what? God's response to people in gloom and distress, facing famine, starvation, is that he's going to send a son? Yeah, but check out the son's name. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor. And all of a sudden, something that happened 2,700 years ago, a promise a foretelling of the way God intervenes in the story of mankind, this moment transcends time. Because when God comes to earth as a man among men, he doesn't do it just to show up. He doesn't do it to bring another list of 10 commands. He doesn't do it to shoot lightning from the sky or the sounds of thunder. No, he comes 
and becomes one of us for the purpose of becoming wonderful counselor. Now, how does that affect your life? Well, for every one of us, at some point when you're in over your head, some point when you don't know who to turn to, when you have nowhere else to turn, can I challenge you and encourage you from a story 2,700 years old that there is a principle we can apply to our lives today. This child, this son, who would be called Wonderful Counselor, has a name, Jesus, the Christ. And we are comforted in Christ, our wonderful counsel. In fact, I would encourage you to write that down as you're taking notes today in your program. There's a place to take notes in the study guide that we give out uh, that's available for you also on our website. You can go to the app and you can get access. Uh, I encourage you to take notes today. Feel free to use a smartphone or tablet. You'll probably have an easier time using a smartphone or tablet. And if you're on social media, which I know probably half of you are right now, um, you're, you're <laughs> Facebooking about how much you're enjoying the coffee. Um, can you pause right now in the middle of that and write this no into your comment. All right, this is what you're gonna write. Find comfort in Christ, our wonderful counselor. That's the application. That's the challenge that every one of us are given. You find comfort in the midst of despair, in the midst of gloom, in the midst of trouble, in Christ who is wonderful counselor. But we don't do that, do we? No, we, we try to find comfort on our own. I got it, I'll take care of it, I'll figure this out. And so you and I, we have a whole list of ways that we try to comfort ourselves when life is full of trouble. Some comfort eat, others comfort drink, some use sex or another addictive behavior, some just mindlessly entertain themselves just to numb the pain of what they're walking through. Either way, all of us have these coping mechanisms that we use as we bottle up the pain and the troubles we're facing. And the challenge is, you can, you can get yourself into a drug-induced stupor. You can numb the pain, but you know as well as I do, it'll eventually come back. You might, you'll eventually wake up and you're gonna be facing the same trouble. It won't have gone away. Because here's the reality. No amount of comfort that you look to on earth will ever deeply comfort the greatest troubles that we carry because our trouble is internal, first and foremost. I'm not saying that you are the cause of all the pain and troubles you face, but I am saying that the deepest trouble you and I experience is first something spiritual as a result of sin. Sin, a term that biblical authors use to describe our spiritual brokenness, that you and I are cut off from relationship with God because we were born with an instinct to sabotage the best that God has for us. We willingly do the very thing that will destroy us. Sin drives our desires, our decisions, and creates in us behavior that pushes us away from God. As a result, we ignore God and we pursue our, our interests, our desires, what we think will make us feel better. Sin sabotages relationships. It sabotages our way of thinking. It's at work destroying our emotions and our mental health. Sin is what is corrupting the world we live in, and it leaves us with nowhere to turn in the midst of trouble. 
And if that's where the sermon ended, this would be a horrible Christmas sermon. If that's where Isaiah ended, with people in distress, facing gloom and in utter darkness, what a horrible sermon and what a horrible reality. But God did not leave people experiencing the destruction of sin because sin's ultimate ruin is far worse than just brokenness and trouble on earth. Sin leads to a forever judgment where we go on living for all eternity, suffering as a consequence of our sin. And God was unwilling to spend forever without you. So he made a promise. In the midst of our distress, our darkness and our gloom, he would come. For unto us a child is born and a son is given and his name would be Wonderful Counselor. Why? Because when God looked down on the world, if he saw that our greatest need was education, he would have sent a teacher. If he saw that our greatest need was more jobs, he would have sent an economist. If our greatest need was money, he would have sent a businessman. If our greatest need was new technology, he would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need was government, he would have sent a politician. But he saw that our greatest need was forgiveness. So he sent a savior. Our greatest need was family. So he sent his son. And our greatest need was comfort, so he sent wonderful counselor. He didn't just legislate. He didn't set more rules and laws. He entered into our trouble, into our world, and became our rescuer. He became wonderful counselor. And if you go from 700 BC, you fast forward to the time of Christ, so we're saying we find comfort in Christ, our wonderful counselor, who was the fulfillment of the promise Isaiah gave on behalf of God. And then let's keep going. We'll keep moving through history, right? After Jesus comes, he dies on a cross. He rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven, and the church begins. The church, which is entrusted with his incredible good news that there is new hope and faith and life found in Jesus Christ. And when you believe in Jesus by faith, you're forgiven of your sins and you're given this new life because you welcome God's spirit into your spirit. And when God's spirit's alive in you, you have eternal life in you and you have a new life where you begin to live different than you did before you had faith in Jesus Christ. That's the good news, right? And the church has this good news. But it's interesting. When you study church history, meaning the story of what happened throughout churches, only one generation later, check it out, right? Don't take very long. One generation removed from the time of Jesus, and the churches were already making it complicated. Here, here's what would happen, right? You had, you had this group of people who accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then they grew up, and then their kids came into faith, and they started inviting other people to faith in Jesus Christ. And now you had a generation removed from knowing Jesus personally, meaning Jesus in the flesh, in human form. And they made it complicated. A little bit like what you and I do with Christmas. You, don't, you didn't remove Jesus from Christmas, right? Like you didn't take Christ out of Christmas. Here's what you and I do. We just pile on. We stick Jesus, the little Jesus in the manger, and then we pile Christmas presents all around it, right? Like Jesus becomes an accessory to Christmas. He becomes a decoration. He becomes a little part of the bigger busyness of the Christmas season. 
Here's what happens. We inoculate ourselves with just enough of Jesus to make ourselves feel good, but not enough of Jesus to transform us. And that's what was going on in the early church. And so one of the, one of the great leaders of the early church wrote a letter to this second generation group of Christians. That letter was written to Hebrew Christians. And so that letter became known as Hebrews. It's in the Bible. It's called Hebrews, written to this second generation of Christians who, just like you and I have a tendency to do, they were piling on all kinds of complications to the Christian faith. And so they had this idea of it's Jesus plus all this other stuff. It's not enough just to believe in Jesus. No, you got to believe in Jesus and then follow all these rules. you got to believe in Jesus and go through all this religious ceremony. And so he writes this letter to challenge people to come back to Jesus. Wonderful counselor. And in that letter, he writes referring to the ancient traditions of the Jewish religion. And so we're going to jump in and we're going to look at this letter written to the Hebrews, chapter 4, where he writes this in verse 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And this idea of a high priest, now we're going back to the Jewish tradition where their religion was that the high priest would go into the tabernacle or into the temple and their responsibility, the high priest's role was to offer sacrifice once a year on behalf of the sins of the people. And so he's saying, you don't have just an ordinary high priest who goes in and offers sacrifice for your sin, but you have no idea, he doesn't have any clue what you've been through. He's completely disconnected from your world and your reality, right? He's saying that's not what kind of a religion you're in. But we have one referring to Jesus, the Christ, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So here's what this author of Hebrews is saying. He goes like this. You're not just part of a religion. You're not just, this isn't about rules and ceremony. You, you believe in a God who came to earth, became one of us, who experienced life firsthand, who's been through the troubles and the struggles and the trials and the suffering that you're walking through. And he faced the same temptations you faced. The good news is, he didn't mess up like you and I. You know, when you give in and you're like, oh, I'm so horrible. He didn't give in that way. As a result, when you turn to God, you're turning to a wonderful counselor who totally gets what you're going through. And in fact, that's his next statement. He goes like this. Let us then, in light of that reality that we have a God who entered into our world who totally understands what we're going through, let us then approach the throne of grace, meaning where God is enthroned. We can enter into his presence where he lives and where he is. And we can enter into his throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This little passage right here, captures the essence of what it means to know Jesus as your wonderful counselor. This is where you turn, who you turn to when you have nowhere to turn. When life feels like it's falling apart, when you've tried really hard to figure it out on your own and you get yourself into trouble and you're going, help. The author of Hebrews is saying, when you start crying help, here's where you turn. You turn to God who has completely understands what you're going through, who became one of us, and who now invites you into his throne room 
where you can come with confidence and receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. What do you do with that? Let me go back and let me read that verse to you again because he actually gives you kind of a two-step process. Here's what you do. In light of this reality that Jesus came, he is our wonderful counselor, he goes like this, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. The first step in the process when we're thinking about approaching God as wonderful counselor in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our crises, is this. We are comforted by the wonderful counselor when we talk to him with confidence. Now, when you think about talking to God, I don't think the first word that comes to most of our minds is confidence. Like, I'm going to come confidently to God. And I think for me, one of the primary reasons why I don't come to God with this sense of confidence is very much like the way my daughters have sometimes come to me. We just recently had new carpet put in our house. I have four kids. Some of you can totally relate to this. Right? Like you can't even begin to describe the things that end up on the carpet, right? And so I come in one of my girls' rooms and, uh, sweetheart, what is that on the floor? Like, it's better to just burst into tears and weep bitterly because you know that you're about to get thrown into utter darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, you're not supposed to put, there should never be open marker on brand new carpet. And, and so I, I hug her. Sweetheart, I understand that you're about to die. You have the right to remain silent. Because um, mommy's going to find out momentarily. She's going to wonder why you're screaming. Uh, right? There's no confidence. No confidence. She's not like, Daddy, you know what I want today? I want a puppy. No, you know that that's not the time to ask for any Christmas presents. When you are confessing that you got marker on the new carpet, you do not come in and say, by the way, here's my list. No, because you know what you know. No confidence. And so often we come to God, who should be our wonderful counselor, groveling, weeping. Oh no, God is out to judge me. God is out to get me. And so we come in begging and afraid and scared because we're wallowing in our self-pity and our shame and our guilt. But that's not what the author says. He says, no, no, no. Because he understands what you've been through, he's been tempted just like you're tempted, but he didn't sin. Then you and I let us approach the throne of grace with confidence where we may receive mercy. The simplest way to describe mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is us not thrashing our children for getting marker on the new carpet. It's not grounding them for the next six months, right? That, that's mercy. I did not give you what you do deserve. Because God is merciful, when you come to him, he is your wonderful counselor, and he does not give you what you do deserve. Why? Because he gave Jesus what he, did, what he didn't deserve. Jesus absorbed what we deserve. He took on himself the eternal death sentence, so that when he died, he died once for all. He absorbed the full punishment for our wrongdoing and sin 
He entered into our world, took our pain, took our suffering, took our sin on himself so he died once for all so that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ by faith is forgiven of their sins, shame and guilt removed as the full expression of the mercy of God. So now you come to God not groveling, but knowing that he knows and he loves you, that he is quick to forgive slow to anger, abounding in mercy and love. That's right, you could celebrate that. I mean, when you think about Christmas, the only one you turn to when you have nowhere else to turn is to the wonderful counselor who gives mercy richly and welcomes you into his presence, into his throne room. Now, when you come and you receive mercy and you're not given what you do deserve, if you've ever been let off for driving too fast and you didn't get the ticket, that was mercy, you don't immediately pull out, right? The police officer's behind you. You don't just gun it, right? Like, that's not good application of mercy. No, you know what you and I do? We're like, let the police officer go around us. And then he doesn't move. And you're like, why isn't he moving? What is he going to like follow me to give me another, like, why? Ah! And like, I'm always paranoid, right? So I, well, no, here's what I do. Like I pull out really slow. <laughs> Driving really, really slow. Like, I don't want to, I know I deserve. Ah! And here's the deal, right? When I come to God who is merciful, then I obey. And that act of the lifestyle of obedience gives me confidence when I continue to come back into his presence. And when I don't obey, and things don't turn out the way I intended, I don't have to come back groveling. I come back to a God who is rich in mercy, quick to forgive. God, I, I blew it again. And he, he holds us in his arms of love. He's a wonderful counselor who embraces us and pours and lavishes his love on us. He's quick to forgive us, but then invites us into a new lifestyle where we're going to live differently. And that's where the rest of the, the verse is so vitally important because I said there's, a, there's another step in this which is, he goes, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, right? It's not just that God hears, he helps. He doesn't just understand what we're going through, like a counselor, like I learned to say, I hear what you're saying, what I hear you saying is, and he he's kind of relates to you as a good counselor and says, I, I understand what you're going through. No, he doesn't just hear, he helps. So we are comforted by the wonderful counselor when we receive his grace. Now, I explain mercy, right, is simply is not receiving what you do deserve. Grace is receiving what you don't deserve. If you've ever seen these like YouTube videos, the police officers in this one town, they thought it'd be really cool to pull, car, pull cars over and then give them gifts. These are really neat videos. You can, you can look it up right now. Some of you will, because you're, you're going to think that that's more entertaining than finishing listening to me. I, I've got just a few moments left here. So, the, so they, the police officers pull a car over. They're expecting judgment. Police officer walks up. So they not only get mercy, not getting what they do deserve, but then the police officers give them gifts. And they actually find out, like if there's kids in the car, they're like, hey, what do you want? And they have like a whole like stockpile in their, in their, uh, in their patrol car. And they're going like giving them gifts and like the whole situation transforms and the people are like, why? There's people weeping. It was just a really special, really cool video, right? That's grace. 
being given gifts that you did not deserve. You did not earn them. And I think our challenge is so often we feel like there's no such thing as a free lunch. It wasn't free. It cost Jesus everything. He paid for your gift of grace. He paid his life as the payment so that when you come to the wonderful counselor, you discover that he is both a counselor and he is wonderful. He is good all the time. He is at work in your life doing what is best. He is actively engaged in the intimate details of your life, and he is at work in your life doing what is good and best. That doesn't mean it always feels best or it always looks good. That's where we trust that God is our wonderful counselor who is in complete control, loves us with a lavish mercy and grace, and is pouring into our life his best. God knows always what is good and what is best. Now, you might be thinking, well, this situation doesn't feel best. I am not saying that it's always going to feel best. It's always going to look best. But God is at work putting his best into our lives. And so my response is simply to trust that he is wonderful counselor. That he has opened up the riches of heaven. He has invited me into his family. He calls me his child. Therefore, I approach God not groveling in fear but knowing that I'm coming to a God who is a loving parent, who wants to give me what is best for my life and is at work in my life, pouring his goodness into me and through me. So God is always good, and he is at work doing good in my life, doing good through my life, and working his goodness into me so that any good that comes out of me is not the result of my effort, or anything I've done, but it's simply God's goodness working its way through me. If right now you've been trying to find comfort in the midst of trouble through anything else, maybe you've been trying to make yourself feel better through some other means, and you're discovering that no matter how hard you try to find comfort, you're not comforted. Can I challenge you? Come to Christ our wonderful counselor. He is rich in mercy and grace. How? How do you do that? Acknowledge Jesus Christ as your Savior. Believe in him in your heart that he died and he rose again. Repent of your old way of living and allow him, his spirit, to enter into your spirit. And you become a child of God. If you believe in Jesus, can I encourage you with this challenge, come to God as wonderful counselor. Maybe you've not been coming in confidence. You've been groveling. You've become distant from God because you're intimidated to come to him. Today is a day to come back into right relationship with God, to come back into that place where you come confidently before God who loves you, who is quick to forgive, is slow to anger, is abounding in mercy. Come to God confidently. He's inviting you close. And when you come to him, some of you have a a difficult situation you're facing. Some of you have been carrying trials and troubles and you're, you're dragging with you all kinds of agony. And you don't need to just know that God hears. You need to know that he can help. And for you, 
Would you come to God knowing that he is offering his grace richly because it was paid in full through the death of Jesus Christ? What do you need from God right now? Would you offer yourself completely to him knowing that he loves you and that he is for you. Can you take a moment right now and just allow God's spirit to speak into your spirit and then take that one step of commitment. Maybe your step of commitment is to acknowledge Jesus Christ as your savior. Maybe your step of commitment is saying, God, I'm gonna come to you confidently to receive mercy. Others of you, you're coming to God confidently to receive grace. Would you make that, take that one step of coming to God today? Would you pause and just begin to pray? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church, located in Hagerstown, Maryland. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.